ending of this worship service of the promise of the gospel that those who confess their sins and turn from them and turn to Christ, the Savior God has sent, will have the forgiveness of their sins and none who go to him will ever be cast out. That's our hope and our comfort as we worship God this morning. Let us then open God's word that he would teach us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1 and then from the letter to the Philippians. But first, we go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 3 through 9. This concerning the hope that we have and the reasons for joy that we have as Christians. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, You love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In light of those reasons for rejoicing, let's turn back now to the letter to the Philippians. Philippians 4, and we'll read the verses 2 through 7. This is part of our sermon series on Philippians, and our text this morning is verse 4, but we'll read read from verses 2 through 7. Beginning then in verse 2. Paul writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So far, the reading of God's word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 64, stanza 6. 
also speaking of the call to rejoice as God's people. As mentioned, the text to which we're giving our attention this morning is verse 4 of chapter 4, namely that command that Paul gives, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, Rejoice. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in all of these verses, verses 4 through 7, we, we were coming to the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we find Paul slowing down, and instead of giving long explanations, he starts moving to short, succinct commands. And we're going to take our time as we work through each of these commands. Uh, that's how Paul meant these words to be read and, and studied slowly, carefully, uh, each command standing on its own. It's one of the challenges when we do our, our personal uh, devotions, our personal readings of Scripture or our family readings, that we like to read sort of, we have a standard reasonable chunk, maybe a chapter or a half a chapter that we like to read together. I think that's true of most Christians. The challenge can be with, when you come to verses like these, they're meant to be taken each on their own, and they're meant to be studied and reflected on and, and thought through. And so that's what we want to do this morning. We want to stop and really listen just to verse 4. Now, because verse 4 is such a well-known verse, I think all of you know it, and you can probably find it on, on posters or, or placards at, at uh, the, the local Christian bookstore. It's a very well-known verse. We might first need to hear it with fresh ears. Don't miss how important it was for Paul that the Philippian church would hear this command to rejoice and that they would really, really hear it and think about it. Uh, not it's not just meant as, as an afterthought. This is the main exhortation of the letter to the Philippians. Uh, you can read this letter and you can take away all sorts of theological gems and, and treasures, and we have been doing that in the last weeks. And you can take away many practical commands as well from this letter. But Paul really wants to make sure that we hear him on this point. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, that's verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Try and hear that with fresh ears, as if you were one of the Philippians reading this letter for the first time. Don't miss how badly Paul wants us to get this and to take this to heart. It's as if he's saying, rejoice in the Lord. Seriously, I mean it. Rejoice. That's what he means when he says, I'll say it again. Rejoice in everything else that you're doing and you're thinking about. Don't forget to rejoice. And so we want to ask, why is joy that important to Paul? Why is it so important to Paul that this Philippian church be a rejoicing church? And why is it so important for us? Some of us are maybe wondering, why does it even matter whether we rejoice or not? Doesn't it matter simply whether we obey? What difference does it ultimately make? And this is a question that we need to ask 
Because many of us have grown up this way, and, and some of us perhaps have even been, been taught that, that Christianity is a matter of, of right doctrine and right practice, and maybe it's not even on purpose, but some of us have been taught that emotions are, are sort of secondary. In fact, many of us have been taught to even be suspicious of our emotions and suspicious of emotional Christianity. Now, I recognize in saying that it's true that, that emotions by themselves, if they're not guided by right doctrine and right practice, they can end up doing more harm than good. They can deceive us into thinking that our lives are in better shape than they are or that we're more spiritual than we really are. Uh, John Calvin once said it this way, uh, zeal, you can say passion or emotion, zeal without doctrine is like, sor- like a sword in the hands of a lunatic which is obviously not a good thing. Zeal is good, but you want it to be in the right hands. And so, having said that, many of us have been taught a sort of stoic Christianity where we focus on the right things to do and the right things to believe and where it doesn't really matter how we feel about those things. Maybe some of us have even had this modeled by our parents. And the conclusion that some of us have come to is that, uh, is that joy, as an emotion, it's okay to have as long as we don't get carried away by it. But it, at best, it's just sort of an, an icing on the cake. If you have right doctrine and right practice and you get joy with it, that's great. But it's not necessary. It's just sort of an, an extra. Many of us think this way And that's why we need to hear verse 4. We need to understand this. Right doctrine and right action without joy, it can be called many things, but it cannot be called faith. It's essential to faith that there is joy. Uh, And that's just... And that's not just according to to certain strands of Christianity. That's right there in Scripture itself. Joy is not optional to your faith. It's essential to your faith. Uh, Think about Lord's Day 33, where it asks, what is the coming to life of the new nature? In other words, what does it mean to be born again? And it answers, it is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ, and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. That's the Lord's Day on conversion. In other words, it's the Lord's Day on what it means to be a a new creation in Christ, what it means essentially to be a Christian. And so to help us appreciate this and really take this to heart, let's just walk through the letter to the Philippians again and notice how this theme comes back again and again. Uh, remember, by the way, this was written by Paul in prison, likely facing a death sentence and after several beatings. Uh, this is not written by, by a prosperity preacher from, from his private plane. This is written by a man who was dying for his faith. Um, and it was written to, to, yes, one of the most living congregations, but also one of the congregations that had suffered the most and that had made some of the greatest sacrifices to support the mission of Paul. So keep that context in mind. Having said that, let's just see how this letter is, is saturated, and it is saturated 
with the theme of joy. All the way back in Philippians 1 verse 4, Paul says, I am always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, What then, after speaking of the way in which Christ has been proclaimed in an an envious and rivalrous sort of way, and yet nevertheless proclaimed, and he says, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And then he says the very next sentence, Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 25 of chapter 1. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. How many of you have thought about that as the task of a pastor or the task of an elder or the task of a missionary is for the joy, to serve the joy of his people? That's what Paul says he wants to stick around on earth in order to do. I know I will remain for your progress and your joy in the faith. Philippians 2, verse 2, he says, If there's anything you can do for me, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So his joy is in the unity of that church. Or verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So there's an exhortation to, to not do the opposite of joy, which is grumbling and disputing. Verse 17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, in other words, even if I am to die as a martyr for your benefit, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 18, the very next verse, he says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Verse 28 Speaking about Epaphroditus here, he says, I am the more eager to send him to you, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. Again, the next verse. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men as him. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 is almost the exact same as uh, the verse that we're looking at this morning. He says in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice. In the Lord, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Then we get to chapter 4, verse 1, three verses before our text. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And we're going to see more of this theme in the rest of this chapter. This This letter is one that's just saturated with the idea of joy. And it's written by a man who suffered greatly to a church that was suffering greatly. And you see joy just flowing through this entire letter. And so the question we want to answer is, why is joy so important to Paul? Hopefully you can see that it is important to him, but we may not yet see why it matters so much and why Paul commands it both in 3 verse 1 and now again in 4 verse 4. To answer that question, we first need to see an important qualifier to this joy, and it's there in some of the other verses as well. And that is that the joy that marks the Christian life is distinctly a joy 
in the Lord. You see that in this verse. Rejoice in the Lord. It's there in 3 verse 1 as well. It's there in a number of other uh, verses. And that distinction matters a lot. The, the command here is not a command to just be happy. Paul is not saying, now brothers, make sure you have a positive outlook. Uh, we're not talking even about joy in general. We're talking specifically about joy in the Lord. If God is not the reason for our joy, then it's not the kind of joy that God is commanding us here to have. Uh, there, are, there are many people that, that are capable of, of instilling in themselves a sense of happiness and joy. Not everyone is capable of that. But that, that joy does not automatically make them more godly than the rest of us if it's not a joy that's rooted in the Lord. So Paul is, is giving a command to rejoice together with a specific worthy reason for rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord. In other words, rejoice because of the Lord. Christ is more valuable than all that this life can, can give. And he is yours and you are his. Let that be your reason for rejoicing. Don't forget this comes right after chapter 3 where Paul talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. How he has been willing to lose everything for the sake of Christ. That's what he means when he says now rejoice in the Lord. You have Christ. And that is a greater reason for rejoicing than anything that this life can give. And so he says, in other words, keep your eyes on who you are and what you have in Christ. And, and, and remember everything that you've inherited through him and will ultimately inherit on the final day. And let that be your reason for rejoicing. And let that, in other words, bring joy right into your soul. And I say your soul... Because joy is something that's far more deeply rooted than, than mere happiness. Uh, joy is, is something that belongs to the soul. Happiness is something that exists on the surface. And, and happiness is only a, a volatile manifestation of inner joy. Happiness comes and goes. Uh, the happiness that's there on the surface can be very easily interrupted. And it's entirely possible to have joy without always feeling happiness. The joy that's in our heart doesn't always make it to the surface. Joy belongs to the soul, and it's rooted in the soul's deepest hopes and deepest loves. Uh, that's why Paul talks in, in 2 Corinthians 6 of how he and the apostles were, were sorrowful and yet always Rejoicing, They experienced sorrow. They shed tears. They cried out in pain. And yet they were still in their hearts always rejoicing. That's the Christian experience. There's weeping. There's, there's brokenness. There's great sorrow at different times in life. And yet at the same time, at a much deeper level, there is, there is a joy that is immeasurably greater because of the hope that we have that is immeasurably greater than the things we experience in this earth. And so we have as Christians a joy that circumstances cannot take 
away because those circumstances can never touch what we have in Christ. Indeed, if anything, those circumstances more often than not bring us closer to Christ and remind us of the joy that we have in him. And so when when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, don't hear this as a command to just be happy. Hear this instead as a command to remember what you have in the Lord as reason for your rejoicing. And we should think about what those reasons are. That's why we read uh, from 1 Peter 3, which talks about the hope that, that can never fail us, that is imperishable and kept in heaven for us. Circumstances cannot take it away. Think of it. In Christ, you are reconciled to God. What can ever take that away? That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And so the Almighty God who created you and who created heaven and earth, is your Father in Christ. And He is committed to you as His child. In Christ, you have access to your Father's throne. And there's no greater delight nor anything that's more able to satisfy your soul than knowing your Lord and God. You were made for Him, and in Christ, you're brought near to Him again. In Christ, you're forgiven of your sins. God will not require from you the payment for your debt that you ought to pay because that payment has already been made in Christ. Think of the joy that you experience when a a small earthly debt is canceled or when you get a a greater refund from the government than you expected was coming. That's a, a small, very small foretaste of the canceling of our debts that we will experience in heaven when we appear before God's throne, give an account of our lives, and hear those words, your debts are canceled because they are already paid in Christ. In Christ, sin also has no power over you. And now already Christ's spirit dwells in you. He works in you. He changes you from selfish sinner to perfect saint. That itself is a thrilling joy in the Christian life to see God changing us from within and becoming someone new, more and more like our Savior. And in Christ, we will have life everlasting. You will live forever in Christ's presence. The preacher in in Ecclesiastes, as he's looking at at life under the sun, in other words, life from the perspective of this earth, he mourns the fact that that God has set eternity in the heart of man. Every human being that lives, whether they, whether they admit it or not, they long to live forever. God has placed that desire in our hearts. And yet in the brokenness of this life, we're faced with the reality that we will not live forever. And yet in Christ, we will. Jesus says, He who believes in me, though he dies, yet he will live Eternity has been set in your heart, and it's been given to you in Christ. Now, I could go on and on, because there, there are so many reasons we have for rejoicing in Christ. But, th- but there's more that we need to say with, with this command. And so, suffice it to say, the command to rejoice in the Lord is just as much a command to rejoice as it is a command to remember, to remember the reasons that we have for our rejoicing. Having said that, then we're, we're ready to answer the question, why? 
Why is joy so important to Paul and so important for you in your life? Let me list three reasons. Reason number one, joy keeps our eyes fixed on Christ. Our joy in the Lord keeps our eyes fixed on Him. This is the first reason, and it's the one that's most obviously on Paul's mind as well, because the deliberate effort to rejoice in the Lord as a daily practice, it it, it focuses our eyes or fixes our eyes on Christ and on the surpassing worth of knowing Him. When we make it our regular habit to rejoice in the Lord daily, it, it forces us to fix our eyes on Him and to remember all that we have in Him. In my judgment, then, this is the reason that, that's foremost on Paul's mind as he's thinking of the Philippian church and all the, the challenges that they're about to face, the persecutions, the potential for division and rivalry. And his command, rejoice in the Lord, is there so that they would fix their eyes on the Lord and not be distracted by the pain that they experience or by the rivalries that will come up in, in their midst. So the daily effort to rejoice in the Lord is something that preserves our faith. A deliberate and and focused effort to rejoice in the Lord forces us to keep our eyes on the incomparable worth of knowing Him and having Him. And that's why Paul commands them, in in summary then, to, to rejoice in the Lord. It keeps our eyes on Christ. It preserves us in our faith. Division, rivalry, doctrinal vulnerability, all of these things breed in a heart where there is no joy in the Lord or where that joy in the Lord is allowed to sort of fade into the background. And so Paul commands them, keep it foremost on your heart and in your mind, your joy in the Lord. Also fear and, and sin and worldliness, all of these take heart or, or take hold in a heart where there is little or no joy in the Lord. Now Paul had already given this exhortation all the way back in, in chapter 3, but Perhaps he also felt the need to give it again right after dealing with the case of these, these two sisters, uh, um, Euodia and Syntyche. And, and he commands them to agree in the Lord. And then he writes in verse 3 to, to the pastor of that church. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with, uh, in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names, he says, are in the book of life. When two brothers or sisters whose names are written in the book of life, if they find themselves embroiled in a dispute within the church, then it's very possible that they've forgotten their joy in the Lord. And that's what enables them to fall into such kinds of disputes. After all, Paul says, their names are written in the book of life then you must rejoice. The Lord Jesus uh, said the same thing to his disciples after they found themselves able to cast out demons. He says, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. That's a small and, and circumstantial thing. Instead, rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. And so Paul says the same thing to these sisters and to the whole church. Rejoice in the Lord, at not least of all, because your names are written in the book of heaven. So that's the first reason. Joy in the Lord 
focuses our eyes on Christ. Secondly, joy sustains our sacrificial service. It sustains the life of service that the Lord our God calls us to, uh, to live. Um, and this is because joy in the Lord, because it helps us fix our eyes on the Lord, then it also sustains us on the hard road of following the Lord. Don't think of joy and, and suffering as opposites. Biblically speaking, they're not opposites. They're very much coexistence. Uh, and if they were opposites, then this command from Paul would have, would have essentially made a mockery of the Philippian church who was suffering more than any other church in the New Testament. And, and Paul knew that they were suffering, and he knew that that suffering would continue and probably get worse. So joy and suffering, in Paul's mind at least, are not opposites. When you hear the command then to rejoice in the Lord, it's not a command to avoid suffering or to appreciate how comfortable you are in the absence of suffering. On the contrary, it's a command to find your joy somewhere so much deeper and so much richer and so much more unshakable that you're not afraid to embrace a life of suffering because that's the life that Christ himself calls us to go down. Consider what the, the author of, of Uh, the author to the Hebrews says about the Lord Jesus, he commands that church, he says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy and suffering were not opposites at all for Christ. Joy is what enabled Christ to go down the road of suffering. And Christ calls us, calls us to the same thing. Our joy is what will sustain us in our sacrifice. Otherwise, we will never make it to the other side. So the call to rejoice in the Lord is a call to share in Christ's joy that enabled him to suffer so that we would also follow him and embrace the suffering that God gives us. That, that kind of joy is the only way that a Christian can embrace the life that Christ calls us to. It's the only thing that can sustain a life of sacrificial service. We can see a little bit of something what it means to rejoice in the Lord when you think about Paul's words in, in chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, he says, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What enabled him to lose everything and to endure all of his suffering? It was the joy of having and knowing Christ. He's saying, in other words, if knowing Christ has such surpassing worth, and it does, and if gaining Christ is worth the loss of all things, and it is, then we who know Christ and who have gained him by God's grace, we have the greatest reason of all people for rejoicing. Making that rejoicing then a daily, deliberate practice will keep us focused on that glorious reality and will enable us to go the hard road that Christ calls us to go. The Lord Jesus uh, spoke of this himself also in Matthew 13. 
He told his disciples, he, this is the parable of the treasure in a field. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. How many of you, like me, have read that parable for years without ever hearing that key phrase, in his joy? He sells everything and goes and buys that field. The Christian life is not one of dutiful sacrifice and suffering because we know that the reward is coming eventually. It it certainly does include that. But the Christian life is a life of joyful sacrifice and suffering. An eager readiness to give up all that we have in order to gain Christ. So the exhortation to rejoice, then, is in essence an exhortation to remember again what a treasure we have in Christ and to let that, that remembrance bring such a joy into our souls that we're able then to go and follow Christ where he leads us. The third reason why Paul gives us this command to rejoice in the Lord is because joy in the Lord magnifies Christ like nothing else. Especially this is true in suffering and in the midst of brokenness. Joy puts the immeasurable worth of Christ on display for everyone to see. And remember, of course, this was Paul's deepest concern. He says so in a number, a number of times in, in uh, this letter. For example, chapter 1, verse 20, he says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so so for Paul, nothing mattered more than magnifying the name of Christ. And nothing honors Christ more than Christians who rejoice in him, even in the most trying circumstances, because of the surpassing worth and value of knowing him. That tells the whole world Christ is more valuable than anything that this earth can have and anything that I might lose in this earth. The Philippians themselves, they would have had a chance to witness the same thing when Paul first came to Philippi uh, together with Silas. And almost immediately they were arrested and they were tied to a post and they were whipped and, and then they were imprisoned. And the Philippian jailer, who eventually, remember, became a member of this church, the Philippian jailer found them singing hymns to God. Now, I don't know if they sang those hymns with smiles on their faces. Maybe the pain in their body after the whipping was too much for that. Maybe, maybe they sang like some of the reformers did with sort of a dead earnest on their faces as they were burned at the stake. But either way, their singing was a manifestation of that inner unconquerable joy that they had in Christ. And their singing put the worth of Christ on display to the whole world, and especially to the Philippian jailer, who, when he saw that, said, Brothers, what must I do to be saved? Nothing demonstrates the beauty and worth of Christ like Christians who know where their hope and treasure is, especially in times of suffering. This, this, by the way, is why the the prosperity gospel or a prosperity-based approach to Christianity is so dishonoring to Christ. If we tell people, uh, join our church because life is good here or because Christ will help you fulfill your potential or, or realize your dreams, 
not only will they discover the hard way that Christianity brings with it a life of much suffering, but that very approach magnifies not Christ, not the value of Christ, it magnifies the value of your potential and your dreams or of a good life, and it uses Christ as a tool to obtain those things. What makes the Christian life so joyful is Christ himself, gaining him and being willing then to lose everything for his sake. And so Paul urges the Philippians with these reasons in mind, rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. Doing so will preserve them in their faith. It will sustain their sacrifice and it will serve to magnify Christ above everything else. And it's such a thoroughly biblical command If you think about it, the command to rejoice is found throughout Scripture. It's amazing that there are so many Christians who still think that joy is sort of an extra that you can add on to your faith, but it's optional, and and that duty and, and service or right doctrine are the main things. No, Scripture commands us from beginning to end, rejoice in the Lord. Think of Psalm 32. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 67, verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. God is glorified and His people are fortified when they rejoice in Him. And so, brothers and sisters, joy is not optional for your faith. It's commanded and it's essential. Duty, serving the Lord without joy, is not faith, and it cannot last. It will never endure a life of sacrifice. So then, for the sake of the Philippians' faith and the sake of Christ's glory, Paul gives this command to rejoice in the Lord. And for him, it's the most important last word that he can leave with him. That's why he says it twice in Philippians 3, verse 1, when he thinks he's going to finish, and then Philippians 4, verse 4, when he really is about to finish, he gives this command twice. Now, some of us, I expect possibly many of us, hear this command to rejoice in the Lord, and we hear it almost as if it's just another burden. Instead of giving us gladness, for many of us, at least for some of us, it comes to us as yet another burden because we know that right now we're not rejoicing in the Lord the way that we ought to. For many Christians, and especially for those Christians enduring a season of depression or perhaps a, a lifetime of depression, the command to, to rejoice in the Lord can almost feel more like an accusation than a reason for joy. Another reminder of our failure to be the rejoicing people that we know we ought to be. If that's you, then let me make a few clarifications to, to Paul's command this is, not, this is a command to, to rejoice in the Lord, not a command to make yourself feel more happy. We need to understand that. It's not a command to be more upbeat. It's not a command to be more positive. Some people might be more adept at attaining that experience of positivity or, or happiness than others, but that doesn't make them more godly people. Godliness is rooted in the knowledge of God, and true Christian delight is rooted in that as well. 
So this is not a command to make yourself feel happier. Indeed, if you approach happiness from that angle, you probably will never attain it. Uh, Most of us cannot will ourselves to be more happy. Happiness is not something you you can raise or lower at your will. And if you pursue happiness just for happiness's sake, you probably will never find it. Instead, this is a command to rejoice in the Lord. In other words, as as I've mentioned already, it's a command to remember the reasons that you have for rejoicing in Him and where your joy is ultimately to be found. Take then, for example, the experience of the psalmist in Psalm 42. This psalm is written by someone going through exactly this wilderness of depression. And that's how scripture talks about it, like a dry wilderness. And the psalmist says in Psalm 42, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? We want to recognize the psalmist is honest about where his heart is at. He's honest that joy is eluding him. He's honest that his heart is, is downcast. And, and he knows that's not the way it ought to be. But he's honest about his present condition. But then he, you could say he preaches to his own soul in the next verse. He says, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Again, verse 6, he says, My soul is downcast within me. He's honest again. But then he says, Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. In other words, the psalmist does not say, Put your hope in God, and and those feelings of being downcast will will just go away. No, he knows better than that. He speaks in the midst of that that dryness and and that fog of, of depression. And he speaks to his soul, saying, Nevertheless, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. The day will come when I will praise him again. Though my soul, in other words, might be downcast right now, and I may find myself powerless right now to change that, to do anything about that, I know that the day will come when I will praise him again. And so I say to my soul, put your hope in God, O soul, even if the experience of that joy is as yet unfelt. This is what Paul means when he commands the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. It's a call to set their hope with all of its immeasurable worth before them and to let that hope, if God wills, bring joy into their soul. Now the daily, deliberate practice of doing that, that will for many Christians bring joy over time into their hearts and and even perhaps happiness to, to the surface. But the necessity of placing that hope remains before us whether that joy ever comes on this side of eternity or not. We still must set our hope before us and the day will come when we will rejoice in the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, hear this command from Paul. Do make this your highest priority, if it isn't already, to be daily, always, as Paul says, rejoicing in the Lord. Set the glory that you have in Christ before your eyes and let that bring joy into your souls. Practically speaking, that this does mean some, some practical daily habits like spending time in God's Word, allowing His glorious truth to begin shaping our, our narrow and often distorted ways of thinking. 
we need to correct our short-sightedness and our blindness, and the Word of God is the tool for that correction. It, it takes time for our eyes to be open to the glory that's in store for us, and we need regular, daily time in God's Word for that to happen. Uh, there, there's no substitute for that regular reading and thinking through of God's Word. And we also need prayer. We need to be regularly asking God to bring joy into our hearts, to pray that prayer of the psalmist that, that the day will come when we will rejoice again and to pray that God would bring that day uh, near. If you think again about the man in, in Jesus' parable who went and sold everything in order to buy that, that, that treasure in the field, you can imagine if that man started to have second thoughts on the way to the market as he's going to sell all his stuff, and maybe he no longer felt that joy, and maybe he wasn't so sure he, wasn't, he, he was going to sell that, his stuff anymore, it wouldn't be because that treasure got any less valuable. It would be because he, in his journey, had lost sight of the value of that treasure. And that's what happens when we Christians, who are about to inherit everlasting joy, everlasting life with Christ, if we find ourselves apathetic or shrugging our shoulders or unsure whether we really want to make any significant sacrifices, it's not because Christ has become any less valuable. It's because we've allowed our eyes to drift from the focus on Christ. If we're going to rejoice in the Lord, then we need to spend time in God's word to allow God's word to fix our perspective and put our eyes back on Christ. We also, for this, we need one another. We need to be encouraging one another. We need to think as, as Christians, where are, there, where are there others in this church who need this encouragement, and can I offer it? Can I come to fix their eyes on Christ? And we need to be ready to have that same correction from one another. When we witness a brother coming forward to do profession of faith, this too is a cause for rejoicing. But to you, Jeff, I would say, take this command from Paul to heart. Rejoice in the Lord. You're going to need to do that in the coming years, to fix your faith on him and to set your hope in him. Keep your eyes on Christ in all that you do. Never forget what you have in him and learn to make it your daily habit to rejoice in him every day to begin each day by putting your hope again in christ so set christ before you set your hope in him and make it your daily practice to begin every day giving thanks to god and praying to god that your sight would also be fixed on christ and that's true for every one of us in this church. Take this exhortation to heart. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Cultivate that joy by remembering the reasons that you have for that joy and practice that joy by singing God's praises with joyful hearts. Let that joy preserve you. Let that joy sustain you in your life of sacrifice and let that joy be your means of putting the worth of Christ on display to the whole world. Amen. Let's sing in response the, the words of Psalm 42, stanza 3.